Well, thank you, choir and orchestra. As you can probably tell, my usual beautiful, smooth voice is breaking up today. I have a little bit. <laughs> I have some sinus problems here. I live in South Carolina. And that's part of the culture here, isn't it? So if I crack and pop a little bit today, I'll just keep on going. I'm going to finish well. So uh, give me good attention, all right? We've already read the passage from God's Word. It's Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, if you want to turn there. They continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And I focus on the word continued. They prayed continuously. Prayer was the priority of that Acts chapter 2 church. Two men were talking about prayer. They were good old boys down somewhere at the garage or somewhere. And one of them said, uh, I don't know much about praying, do you? And the other one said, oh, yeah, I know a lot about praying. He said, I bet you don't. I bet you don't even know the Lord's Prayer. And his buddy said, oh, yeah, I do. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. His, brother, his buddy slapped him on the shoulder and said, wow, I didn't know you knew that which tells me that a lot of people are ignorant about prayer. As much as we hear about prayer and as common as prayer is, and as much as I have taught on it through the years, people don't understand prayer. I looked in my sermon file of previous outlines and messages. Probably the thickest sermon file I have after 48 years is the sermon file that has the outlines and the studies on prayer. I probably have preached on it more than anything else. And yet I find if I don't preach on it, that we don't pray, we drift. So today I'd like to talk to you about prayer. John Fletcher was one of the co-workers with John Wesley <clears throat> when the Wesleyan revivals swept across England, across the United Kingdom, and then ultimately across the Atlantic Ocean. And over here, we called it the Great Awakening. Over there, it was the Wesleyan Revivals. And several men were instrumental in that. We know John Wesley's name. But John Fletcher was one of his co-workers. Many have called him the most godly man of that century. He prayed several hours a day. And he was a powerful and anointed preacher of God's Word. And John Fletcher used this as a greeting when he met people. He would say to them as he stood in the pulpit and he greeted the congregation, Brethren, do I find you praying? A simple question. Do I meet you praying? He would, meet, he would say to people on the, on the path as they passed each other uh, riding on horses in those days. In other words, his greeting reminded people <clears throat> of their need to pray. And in the Acts chapter 2 church here, prayer, as I've said already, was their absolute priority. You know that priority means first. And to that early church, prayer was first in importance. It was also first in priority. Remember that these are the very same people who had come to the Lord Jesus Christ earlier and they had said in Luke chapter 11, Lord, 
teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. They had observed him doing miracles, but they weren't interested in him teaching them about miracles. They had heard him teach the Word of God, but they didn't request to be taught how to teach or to preach. Their request was, Lord, teach us how to pray. And the Lord did that. Because you see, prayer is the single best measurement, I think, of a person's spiritual life. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, then, how do we measure faith? Do I have faith? The Bible says that faith comes from believing that God is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So when we diligently seek God in prayer, then God graciously gives us faith. Every other Christian practice can be faked. Every other Christian practice can be done with wrong motivation. I can give money, and in giving money, I can get approval from somebody. I can stand here and preach because I love the attention. I love the, uh, the, the, the eyes of people upon me, and my motivation is wrong. I can teach, I can sing, and my motivation is for my own glory. But when I, when I pray, my prayer is between God and me. Wow, I'm sorry, folks. You know, I didn't feel like this till I got up here today. <laughs> I'm allergic to somebody here. Okay, at any rate, <clears throat> I'm all I got, so I got to go here, all right? <clears throat> So every other Christian practice can be done with a wrong motive. But the Lord said, go into your, into your closet and pray. And when you do, shut the door. Shut the world out. Don't look for anybody's approval. You pray because you're praying only to me. The question is, does God really answer prayer? <clears throat> and he does. If I pray in faith, Do I believe that God is really going to answer my prayer? If I pray in his will, then prayer must be according to the will of God, which must be found in the word of God. But if I pray in his will, if I pray with faith, if I pray with no known unconfessed sin in my life, then God has promised to hear and to answer my prayer. So my question to you is the question of old John Fletcher. Do I meet you praying today, my friends? Are you praying? Do you pray regularly, faithfully, humbly before our God? You see, prayer is the evidence of our salvation. In the book of Acts, chapter number 9, turn over there with me, and I want to read a passage of Scripture. And while I do, I'm going to get me a mint. Y'all have heard the story. Y'all watch out on the front row. There's a story about the little boy that the preacher put a mint in his mouth, and the little boy was asleep right down there. And the preacher was sucking on the mint because he was having trouble like me, I guess. And he got back, and he unfortunately blew the mint out. And it went like that, a cough drop. Landed right on the little boy's cheek. 
And the little boy looked, woke up, looked at it, and went, <laughs> gift from heaven, huh? <clears throat> so y'all watch out in the first three or four rows down there. I'm going <clears throat> to try to look out for you. In Acts chapter 9 is the most wonderful conversion probably in the New Testament. In Acts 9, the apostle Paul is saved. This persecutor of Christians, this hater of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 9 and verse 10, we read, after he is saved, that there was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the street that is called straight. And inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarshish. For how will you identify this hater of Christians, this persecutor of God's people? Behold, he prayeth. Saul, this persecutor, had been saved. People were afraid of him. And so Ananias is called upon by the Lord in a vision. Go and see Paul. And Ananias said, oh, I'm afraid. I, if I go to him, he may, he may throw me in jail. He may persecute me. And the angel said to him, no, he's a different man. He's been saved because notice when you find him, he will be praying. And prayer, I think, is probably the single greatest evidence of salvation in my life. You see, prayer is a universal characteristic of all believers. Every Christian prays. The Apostle Paul starts his epistle to the book of, to the Corinthians by saying, to all in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the very opposite is true. In Psalm number 14 and verse number 4, the Scripture says that the workers of iniquity call not upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The characteristic of people who are not saved is that they, call, they don't call upon the name of the Lord. They are not praying people. What is the first sign of life in a new baby? A new baby is born, and the doctor lifts that baby out of the womb, and that doctor may swat that little baby. I've heard that they do. And the little baby sucks air into their lungs, and the very first act of that little child is that that little child cries. They cry out. Isn't it interesting that that's the very first thing that happens in the life of a believer. And in Luke chapter 18 and verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ said about his people, they cry unto the Father day and night. The true mark, the surest evidence of a person's salvation is that they cry unto the Lord. They pray. And so my question again to you is this, do I find you praying? Are you praying today, church? You see, prayer is not salvation, but prayer is the means of salvation that we all have experienced. The Bible is very clear. Salvation, Ephesians 2 and verse 1, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not through, through any human effort. By grace, that's God's grace, are you saved. So salvation has two parts to it. There's the part from God's point of view. 
by grace, unmerited favor, totally unearned and totally undeserved. God grants us grace. He bestows upon us this wonderful gift that we call salvation. By grace are you saved. That's God's part. Man's part, on the other hand, is by grace are you saved through faith. And so when God offers me salvation, as he does to every single one, and God offers me salvation, and I reach out my hand, my empty hand of faith, as James Kennedy said, like a beggar reaching out his hand to someone from whom he would like a gift. And I reach out my empty hands of faith, and I say, oh, God, I realize that I'm a sinner. I need your salvation today. Come and save me by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I do that, then the Bible teaches that I'm saved. But here's the question. God's part is grace. Man's part is faith. But can a person truly be saved without asking for it? Can a person come to salvation and never pray and never ask for it? And I think the answer is no. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 13 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, that's prayer. Whosoever shall call on the Lord's name, that person shall be saved. Without a doubt, not maybe, not hope so, guess so, think so, but whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. But when I say that, I need to make it clear to you that I need to make it clear that, you, that, that salvation is not in just saying a prayer. Across our land today, because we evangelical people were very evangelistic, this week our church knocked on 2,056 doors. And in doing that, the idea comes to people because of our, our, our hyper-evangelism even sometimes that if they pray a prayer, they can be saved. I've even talked to people and said to them, and, and not once but many times, I've said to people, do you know today if you died you, you, you would go to heaven? And they'll say to me, oh, yeah, I know that, Pastor. Well, I said, how do you know that? And they'll say, I prayed that prayer. I prayed that prayer. Their whole concept of salvation was that one time they bowed their head for a moment and they said a few words of prayer and asked the Lord to save them. So I want to make it clear to you that you can pray a prayer and without repentance and without faith and without heart, then it doesn't necessarily mean you've been saved. It's not an automatic salvation because you prayed a prayer to receive Christ. You see, salvation is not by Bible reading. If it were, then the illiterate and the blind would have no hope, would they? Salvation is not by baptism. If it, no water, no physical water can cleanse a human soul. Salvation is not by living a moral life. The Bible clearly says it is not by human works, human effort, that we could ever earn the gift of salvation. And you can pray. And if all you're doing is mouthing words to God, then that's not salvation. Salvation begins with understanding that God loves us, that God has 
grace that he wants to bestow upon us, that Christ died upon the cross, and when he died, he shed his blood for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2, and that in shedding his blood, he paid the penalty for each of us, and now God offers this free gift, salvation, through the merits completely, fully, and totally of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And when I pray in faith, believing With repentance in my heart for my wrongdoings and my sins, the Bible says, if I call upon the Lord in that manner, then I will be saved. Salvation is by God's grace, but it is received through prayer. I reach out my empty hand. God, save me today. I need your grace in my life. And he told us that he would. So prayer is evidence that we're saved, number one. Prayer is the means by which salvation is delivered to us, number two. But I want to hurry and say that there is no duty that I know of that is so neglected among Christian people today. I think people will give money more readily than they will pray. I think that people will attend church faithfully and yet rarely ever bend their knee in diligent prayer. I think that people will read the Bible out of curiosity for what it says, but fail to pray. And I think that even those of us who are involved in the Lord's work, sincere, genuine Christian people, that it's very easy for us to mechanically pray, to pray not even thinking what we're saying, that we're entering the throne room of the King of Kings, the CEO of the universe, Almighty God. And I think that so often we just spout these prayers. We just say these words. For example, we sit down to to eat, and uh, most of us, because we say a table grace, if we're not careful, it's so mechanical. We say the same thing we said yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before. No different than a child who's memorized a little table grace prayer. And without even thinking, we become very mechanical. We can do the same thing in all of our praying. We can do that. The pastor can do that in the pulpit. He can walk up here and pray because the program says it's time to pray. Prayer is when we sincerely, fervently, thoughtfully approach the throne of God's grace. I'll tell you why it's so difficult, because prayer is not natural to to a human being. The Bible says that the carnal mind is enmity with God. What does the word enmity mean? It's not a word we use often. It means hostile. The carnal mind, that's carnal is fleshly. The natural human tendency is to be hostile to the purposes of God. That's part of our fallen nature. That's part of our brokenness, ladies and gentlemen. And so, I don't want to pray naturally. When the desire to come upon me, when, when, when the desire to pray comes up on me, it is the Holy Spirit of God who is working in my heart and leading me to the throne of grace. You see, I don't want to pray without a sense of sin, without a sense of my need that I'm undeserving of the grace of God. Self-righteous people don't pray. 
They feel no need to pray. We don't pray without a sense of need, that I need the Lord in what endeavor I may be facing. Proud people don't pray. We don't pray if we doubt God's promises. If down inside our deepest soul, we wonder if God's word is really true or if it does any good to pray, then we don't pray. We don't pray until we believe that God will hear and answer our prayer. The faithless don't pray. We won't pray if we have no appetite for God and for holiness and for his presence in a very real way in our life. The formalist doesn't pray. Only the person who has that appetite, that longing, that thirst. And you say, oh, God, I need you today. I'm unworthy of any blessing that you would give me. Lord, I do believe. Help thou mine unbelief, as the man said in the Scripture. I do believe. Help me. Increase my faith, Lord. But I come to you because I need you in my life, Lord. I am totally dependent upon you. The reality is that all the polls show that only about the average American evangelical Christian prays less than five minutes a day. Less than five minutes a day. I think that's a partial explanation for the moral slide of the whole society today. Because prayer creates a God consciousness in us. And when people don't pray, they're not aware of, they're not conscious of the Lord in their life. I would think the average Christian probably says a table grace. And I would think we might utter a few words when we get out of bed in the morning or before we retire at night. But to stop and think about life, and about the Creator, and our relationship to Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ, and what He's done for us, and to search our hearts, to say, Lord, show me anything within my heart that is not pleasing to You, and to seek His cleansing on a daily and a regular basis, and then to give Him our petitions and supplicate I I don't know how many of us are doing that anymore. I think busyness has been the great, great enemy of devoted prayer in our life today. We have important things to do, don't we? We've got text to answer, and we've got a Facebook response that needs to be made, and we've got a ball game to go to, and there's television programs to watch and movies to see, and exciting things to do. Who wants to get in your closet and get on your knees, which is uncomfortable, and then begin to pour our hearts out to God? Serious stuff, heavy stuff, the stuff of the soul, but the stuff of eternity, I would remind you, ladies and gentlemen. We're too busy. And because we're too busy, we neglect to pray. And because we neglect to pray, we backslide. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19 in your Bible. 
I've been studying and looking at this whole thing of revival again, and this is the first of a number of messages I intend to preach on it. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah teaches us in this verse, without even naming prayer, he says, though, in essence, that our neglect of prayer is the great cause of people backsliding. Now, do you think I'm talking about a disease that's uh, non-existent, non-important? Do you think there might be any backsliders ever attend the Florence Baptist Temple? You think there's any backsliders watching television in eastern South Carolina? Well, then I'm preaching to a need, am I not? And Jeremiah uses the word backsliding in his book nine times. Nine times Jeremiah refers to backsliders, backsliding. He even uses the plural backslidings. And what is a backslider? It's not a person who has been saved and loses his or her salvation. We don't believe in that. As Baptists, we believe in eternal security. We believe that if a person is ever sincerely, genuinely born again into the family of God, that that person will always be in the family of God. We believe that we become the sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ and that that relationship will never be broken. Now, The fellowship with God can be broken by sin, but the relationship is permanent. It's eternal. And so Jeremiah writes in chapter 2 and in verse number 19, he says, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. He says this to the nation of Israel. Know therefore and see, and here's my point, that it is an evil thing and a bitter thing that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. He says, people backslide because they forsake me. They don't pray. They're not aware. They're not consciousness of me in their day-to-day life. Throughout the day, they don't give thought to me. They have forsaken me. And So Jeremiah over and over goes to this word, backslide, backslider, one who has been saved, one who in the past has lived close to the Lord, a consecrated, committed, devoted Christian life. And then they've grown cold and they've slid back. That's the term. They've slid back from the position that they once were. Their spiritual life at one time was here. Now it's here. At one time it was here, now it's here. At one time it was here, now it's here. And they slide back. It's inadvertent. It's not intentional. Nobody sets out and writes on their do list, I think I will backslide today. What people do is they neglect prayer and the Word of God and the basics of the Christian life, the basic Christian disciplines. And then they begin to slide imperceptibly. Little by little by little, they slide backwards until their hearts are cold and they've forsaken the Lord. This was the sin of the ancient nation of Israel, and it's the sin today of evangelical Christianity in America. We're losing people by the droves, people who formerly went to church, served God, lived for the Lord, tithed, witnessed, and now they've become inactive. They occasionally show up. 
And it's a national epidemic we're facing. And so I said, you know where we start? We start with prayer. We start with the one thing that we cannot do insincerely. And I call upon the people of this church and the people who are watching us today. I call upon you, Christian people. Do you pray? The words of old John Fletcher. Brethren, do I meet you praying? How is your prayer life today, folks? Jeremiah addressed an entire generation of people who had walked away, turned their back on their godly heritage. And we see that happening on a national level today in America. Oh, it should break our hearts. I was sitting in my office a couple of years ago over here, and a bird flew into the window. And I was reading or doing something. Pop! It was pretty loud. A little bird hit the window, and I looked, and he had fallen in the flower bed. And he had broken his wing. And he was such a pitiful little thing, pretty little bird. And I stood there, and I watched him. His little feet were going like this, but because one, one of his wings was broken, he couldn't get any traction. He was just going around in a circle. And I stood there, and at first I said with my cold logic, just a bird. And then I watched him, and I became, uh, I felt sorry for the bird. I walked out there, and I thought, what do I do? Call EMS? No, I don't think they'll come for a bird. And I watched the little bird, and in a few moments, he passed away. But it was sad. Just a little incident, one of those things that happened along the road of life happens to us all the time. A bird with a broken wing, about as sad as a Christian who used to be fervent for the Lord. Sad. I never know what the choir is going to sing. I guess we should get together and plan for a year in advance so that my sermons coordinate with Jim's music. But honestly, if we did that, my sermons don't coordinate with anything. I don't have a clue until I get up here most of the time. But what a great song they sung today. And how appropriate. Finish well. Finish well. So many people get near the finish line and they fail. So many people get a little gray on their head and they think, I don't need to be as committed as I used to be. So many of us in the fourth quarter, we sort of get tired of serving the Lord and we backslide. We backslide. As sad as the bird with a broken wing is the Christian who used to be the backslider. You know how you prevent it? You prevent it by staying on your knees before the Lord. You prevent it by beginning the day with the Bible in your lap. You know that. I've said that a thousand times. It's old stuff. And yet those Christian disciplines, those basics, 
You cannot ignore them. You cannot violate them and be successful in your Christian life. Old John Fletcher's question is still true today. Brethren, do I meet you praying? How much time do you spend with God? How faithful are you in your devotion time and your scripture reading? How faithful are you in attending the Lord's house? How faithful are you in witnessing for the Savior? Basic stuff. But if we want revival, we can never back up on it. You know, we fall in private a long time before we ever fall in public. We cease to do those little little disciplines. And if your heart is cold today, if your fervor for the Lord Jesus Christ has diminished, let me tell you the way back home is to sincerely, truly, faithfully get into God's Word and then get on your knees. Brethren, do I meet you? Pray. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.